I will never forget when I heard one of the most respected Bible teachers of our era, of our day, say that to be in church on any given Sunday is to be in one of the most dangerous places you could ever be. And then, he said, you would be better off watching football on Sunday than to be in most churches. Pretty provocative. In fact, so provocative that I was just going to give you the quote this morning and then say, I heard someone say that once. But out of fear of man, I didn't, lest you be completely offended that I would ever say that. Why would a respected, respectable Bible teacher who pastors a church, who urges people to go to church, he's a pretty big fan of church, thinks Christians should go to church, why would he say that the church is one of the most dangerous places on earth? Why would he say that it's better to watch football on Sunday, don't go to church, than go to most churches? Right or wrong, why would he say that? I think he would say that because... Labels don't always match realities. And I know that's true. In the Bible, we have Christ talked about, but then we also have imposter Christ called Antichrist. But Antichrist don't wear the label Antichrist, they wear the label Christ. The Bible talks about the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel, only one good news message about the one perfect work of Jesus. And yet in the Bible, there are references to other gospels that aren't really other gospels, like in Galatians. Now, they don't wear the label other gospels. They wear the label gospel. And yet they're not real. They're deceptive. We all say we're biblical because we're Christians. But how many things have you seen and heard and passed off with a Bible verse attached that is anything but biblical when you actually look at it a little closer? Church is dangerous. Christianity is dangerous. And yet, it's beautiful, necessary, true, vital. But the sooner that we know that there are imposters, the sooner, the sooner we know that there are dangers associated with, with saying, I'm a Christian, and the sooner we know about some of these complexities, the better off we'll be. Jesus knew this. Jesus takes his own disciples while he's there and warns them about these kinds of dangers. And certainly the warnings go up in escalation, or they, they become escalated the closer it is to his departure time. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at Luke 17 and the first 10 verses. And Jesus, uh, if you will, calls calls his disciples to huddle up. Um, and, And it's time for you to know some things about surviving. Surviving life as disciples of Jesus. This, uh, surviving life in the church that is going to be birthed. Surviving, making it through So I'm calling these spiritual survival tactics for disciples, for Christians. Um, And when we come to these first 10 verses of chapter 17, the the setting, the climate, what's been going on, you know, Jesus has been locking horns with his rivals, uh, the Pharisees, the the, the religious establishment of the day that bore the right label. They, They would have said they were committed to the one true living God. And yet they were telling lies. They were imposters. They were dangerous. 
So that's been going on, and there's been back and forth. Jesus has been with the disciples, instructing them. Then he's been confronting the Pharisees. All of this kind of uh, in the same context. Not necessarily going in different rooms and locking doors. This has all been going on, around, going on in the same kind of environment. And so now he takes the disciples, again, on location. So Pharisees are, are within sight, if not within earshot. And he warns them. And he warns them. So we're going to look at four of these. I'll try to capture them in about a word, but these are survival tactics for these disciples, and I think they're survival tactics for us as Christians. So the first one, first survival tactic, uh, living in, in the world of Christianity, so to speak, is guard, guard, or be on guard. And we'll see this in the first three verses. And we'll, we'll, we'll ebb and flow in and out of this is what was going on then and there, and then we'll go into some application for us um, as we go. Okay? All right. Let's see this, this issue of being on guard or guarding. Beginning in verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, no doubt with Pharisees around, maybe they're the, they're the contrast, temptations to sin are sure to come. It would be, uh, are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be far better, or it would be better for him, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And then it seems like the first part of verse 3 should go with that idea, with that thought. Pay attention to yourselves. Remember, we added the verse divisions just for utility's sake. I could say, look at verse 3. So I'm going to handle that first part with those first two verses. It's this warning. Pay attention to yourselves. It's this command. It's urgent. It's vital. Isn't it interesting that temptations will come? Temptations to sin will come. And we could spend our whole time just talking about that. And he's talking to disciples who can be tempted to sin. We're not going to do that. But just see it's a real life kind of temptation. It's dangerous. We're not glorified in this world. We're not above temptation. We as Christians are not above sin. And so he gives them this serious warning. Be on guard. Watch out. If you want to survive life in Christianity, you'd better have your eyes open. You'd better not think, well, now that I'm a Christian, no temptations, no, no struggles, everything's fine. Everybody's with me. Everybody who says they're a Christian is with me. Everything's just you know, kick back. And he's, you know, he's like, pay attention. Be on guard. Because sin is bad. Now, any sin is bad. And we could also do a whole study on, you know, one sin would be enough. All sin is offensive to God. We could go down that road. And that's all true. Here it seems like he's talking about something extraordinary. And Bible commentators are, are pretty much on the same page on that. Seems like he's talking about something extraordinary, super dangerous to your soul. Yes, any sin would be. But, but many commentators would say, you know, it seems like he, he has something in view like apostasy. Like you're going to be misled into following some other kind of gospel. And that's why everything's escalated. And better for a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the deepest sea. This isn't a quote-unquote little white lie. And again, you don't need to correct my theology. I know there's really no such thing as a little white lie. And all, all that kind of... But it seems to be something with great gravity, great danger. So he uses this graphic image of it'd be better off for that person who misleads you that you need to be aware of 
But they're so bad what they're trying to do to you, it'd be better if they were executed. The millstone, the giant stone that's used because it's so heavy that nobody could carry it. So they smash the olives and, and have it go around by some, you know, donkey or something to move it around to grind the olives and come up with olive oil or wheat or whatever it might be. It's that massive stone. Around your neck, drowned violently. But the idea is, disciples, it's a time to be sober. It's a time to be vigilant. It's a time to pay attention. It's not a time to conclude, well, they talk about God. The Pharisees talked about God, the one true God, Yahweh, the self-existent God who's not like any of the other gods. I think they're the backdrop and Jesus says, you better watch out. You better be careful. For us, it would be people who say they're Christians. They say they believe the Bible. If they're misleading you, it'd be better if they weren't alive. Specifically down a road of apostasy, I think. So I would say to my brothers and sisters in Christ, you got to be sober-minded. Not everybody who wears the jerseys on the team. And how about this? Let's just recognize the obvious. Jesus isn't for everybody. And what I don't mean is from our vantage point. Well, he's just not for everybody. <laughs> okay. Jesus is against certain people who will say things about him. Jesus isn't a, you know, whatever you want to make of me. I mean, Jesus is drawing the line in the sand and saying, there are certain people who would be better off if they were dead. Not politically correct, a little bit unsettling. Sounds dangerous or something. Seems to be the idea. Pay attention to yourselves. I think what makes this so vital for for Omaha Bible Church and for you and for me as it was for them is because, again, sometimes we, we are just really naive. And we're not very discerning. And we forget that antichrists don't wear name tags that say, Hello, my name is Antichrist. They don't do that. Be vigilant. Eyes wide open. There's real danger. You might ask the question, well, how would they know how to do this? Again, it's so good to read, read gospel accounts together. He's been teaching them. He's been teaching them on every, opera, on, on every different kind of occasion, all different sorts of occasions. It's saying, you know, here's who I am. Who do other people say I am? And then he's got a contrast to work with to kind of help them. He gets them saying things and they're saying wrong things. And so he can help them and correct them and guide them along. Here's who I really and truly am. We just did that series, Why Theology Matters. Well, yeah, you need to know who Jesus is and you need to know what he came to do. And, and he's been teaching them that all along. And so we're, we're, you know, artificially removing this from its context in one sense just for today. But let's remember, he's, he's revealed himself to them. He's been teaching them. He's going to keep teaching them. Building upon what had come before, revelation-wise, so that they'll know. So how can we stand vigilant and on guard? How can you do that? You can do that by knowing who Jesus is and who He revealed Himself to be, what He came to do, 
That's how you can do it. That's how you can be discerning. This is relevant to you as a disciple. Disciples are Christians. It's used interchangeably as a matter of fact. In the book of Acts, disciples are eventually called Christians. So I, I, want, I want to urge you in command mode, in, in imperative mode, you know, pay attention to yourself. Be on guard. Be clear thinking. Be sober-minded. And then teachers, it gets even elevated even more. Teachers are supposed to be careful. We just had a, uh, an elder candidate presented to you last week. And, and one of the qualifications for an elder or a pastor or an overseer is they have to be able to teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching about God. And they have to be able to, to be able to do that so well that they can defend it and silence those who would contradict it. So we, we, we want that of our teachers, but really teachers are supposed to do what we're all really trying to do. It's not a game. Serious. A lot on the line. I like what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep close watch on yourself and the teaching. There's this body of Christian truth about Christ. The teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's pretty serious. And so to reiterate, please don't be Mr. and Mrs. Gullible. Others have said, I would never say this. But others have said that, that evangelical Christians are some of the most gullible people alive. I would say that because I think it tends to be true. Look at the books that are sold by the bazillions that we just devour. Just because it has the name Christian on it doesn't mean it is. It's dangerous. Be motivated. Be careful. For the glory of Christ, for the good of your soul, be careful. If they needed to hear this when Jesus was still with them face to face, I think I probably need to hear it too. I think you do as well. Well, enough about that for now. But he is talking about sin, and I want you to keep that in mind. So he's, he's just covering miscellaneous things, but there's some relationship. And so survival tactic number two is rebuke and forgive. I'm going to sneak two of them in there. Rebuke and forgive. But remember, he was just talking about sin. Anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin. Context of disciples, I think. It's going to be bad for them. But remember, he was just talking about sin. So then let's talk about rebuking and forgiving. Verse 3 goes on to say, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns uh, to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Should we start with rebuking or forgiving? Well, let's start with the forgiving side. Maybe because it's the harder side. If you're going to survive in the community of believers, if you're going to survive and, and do so for the glory of Christ, and be safe, if you will, and honor Christ, which is, is what we want to do, you're going to have to make sure that you know that there's a place for you as a disciple to rebuke and a place for you to forgive. 
So let's talk about forgiveness. To forgive someone is to what? It's to not hold something against them. Sometimes we as sophisticated Christians, we say, we say, we don't like that statement. Well, it doesn't mean forget because God never forgets. But he does forgive. Yeah, fair enough. You can sit in the front of the class. Good job for being discerning. Um, at the risk of offending you, I'm going to say, you know what, maybe we should at least kind of dabble with the forget idea. I don't think it's altogether right, but maybe it kind of gets us on the right track. In a sense, it's like forgetting. It's like forgetting it ever happened. Because if you don't hold it against them, if you've forgotten it, you won't hold it against them. And so it, it could be a reasonable tool to say, you know, it's kind of like forgetting. Even though we have, to, we have footnotes theologically, because we're careful. <laughs> it's a lot like forgetting. You know what? I forgot it even happened. That's a sign I've probably forgiven. Or you've probably forgiven. It's not bad. We're called to do that. Isn't it interesting? Context of believers. Your brother. Your brother in Christ sins against you. Your sister in Christ sins against you. And what do you do? You've got to stand ready. Seven times a day. He's just using that as a big number. Doesn't he say seven or seventy? Seven in this context. <laughs> Elsewhere, 70 times seven. You've got to be ready to just say, I, I don't hold that against you anymore. I don't really like that, do you? <laughs> Based upon the way we live, we don't. And maybe again, just for the sake of teaching, let me, let me just affirm you in that for a second. And then I'm going to try my best to cut your legs out from under you. Okay. But, but sometimes we, we, we so overstate things, we, we kind of miss an opportunity to learn. Let me just affirm on a certain level that desire in you to not forgive people. I'm going to, I'm going to correct it. There's something in me that thinks they did something wrong. And so wrong should not be forgotten. And in a certain way, if you feel that way, and you all, every, all of us do sometimes, you know what, there's something about that that's good because you're made in God's image, and God is just. And you don't just, if there's something wrong, you don't just get, well, I just, you don't, you don't just say, I need to articulate, you don't just say, it's not a violation. That's unrighteous. That's unjust. The penalty needs to fit the crime. There's something in us that, because we're made in God's image, I think that, that should say, you know what, that, that's not right. And yet we have to remember that we're made in God's image and God is also merciful. And God is also a God who forgives. And so we do have to remember that. Affirm, you know, wrong is wrong. You're not saying wrong is right, it's wrong. But yet I'm made in God's image and, and I, should, I should forgive and I should say, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm going to show mercy. But see, sometimes it's hard for me to understand the mercy side of things if I didn't understand the, the, the unjust side of things or the just side of things. Jesus says, forgive. Keep forgiving. How can this be? Made in God's image. But you all know it's bigger than that, right? He's writing to people who are disciples of Jesus and he says, you forgive and you just keep on forgiving. How could you, how could you do that? Truly. 
You can truly do that because you've been forgiven so much. It's amazing, right? We can't even begin to imagine how much we've been forgiven if we're Christians. At the end of Luke's gospel account, Jesus on the cross in chapter 24 is going to say words that everyone in this room, Christian or not a Christian, probably knows. And they're what? Father, what? Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them for being sinners, number one. Forgive forgive them for, for really, really showing their sin. They've rejected the very one who would come and provide atonement. It's terrible. And Jesus says, forgive them. And so we, we, we know, we get it. And think about what a big deal this is. I, I tend to think, well, um, I, I, th- I can think of some sins I've sinned, sinned against God with. Let's see, five, maybe ten. I, I could probably get it on a legal pad. And then you start to learn more about who God is and you learn about who we are. You learn about God's law and God, you know, love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, yeah, I've been forgiven a lot. And then you're called to forgive. You know, there's a context. I love Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 for this. So if you'd like to go ahead and turn there, you can, just to help us. To the degree that I can't forgive you, it means I won't forgive you. And if I won't forgive you, really it's because I don't really understand what God has done for me in Christ. So again, so much of what we do is point to Christ, point to the gospel, point to what he's done, provides us with a context so we can understand what it means to forgive other people because we've been forgiven so much. This last week, a friend of mine who was not a Christian was telling me about all of these bad things that someone else had done to him and the conflict in the relationship. And I couldn't tell him what I'm telling you. Remember what Christ has done to forgive you. You're a Christian. And I couldn't preach the same sermon to him. I hope someday I can. And I could use it as an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Yes, I didn't do that at this point. But as I'm listening, I'm thinking, this guy needs the gospel. He needs to understand. And, and, and then there'll be a great context, not just for image of God, but gospel. He's been forgiven. Ephesians 1.7. Okay? Ephesians 1.7 says... In Him we have redemption. It's in Christ, united to Him. We have redemption... Through His blood, there's the atoning sacrifice, and notice what's tied to His blood and redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our violations, according to the riches of His grace. So we have that in Christ. And then if you turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 32, we see the practical side of this. So He teaches us the theology, and then He shows us why the theology matters not only for worship, but also for living. In chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And there He connects us back to chapter 1 really, as God in Christ forgave you. It's awesome. And everyone in this room can understand this. It's a lot harder to do, and we have to keep being reminded, but it's, it's really quite amazing. If I sin against you, you sin against me, and really we shouldn't say if, right? I, I need to make sure I, I'm clearly aware and eyes wide open and heart stirred by the good news of salvation in Christ and the redeeming work of of Christ. And now the greatest offense imaginable 
Didn't want to go there. Sorry, but let's go there. The greatest offense imaginable is forgivable. Because the greatest offense ever committed against you wouldn't even compare to the offenses you've committed against God. And if you don't think that that's true, I would love to talk more about it. Just not now. So as we understand this, we understand this. And if we don't understand this, we'll never survive in this. And we'll just leave a bunch of turmoil in our past. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen with them. He knows what's going to happen with us. Supposedly, I'm not really sure. I checked a few sources, but supposedly, King Louis the Twelfth, King of France, not vouching for the perfection of the story or for his Christianity or that, but supposedly, um, after being very harshly treated, imprisoned, maligned, all sorts of injustices committed against him, and then eventually going to the throne, monarch, king of France, he made a list of all the people he could think of who had wronged him. Atrocities, injustices, sins, probably had help from advisors. Let's make the list. Let's make the record book. Let's make the log. And then he wrote a red cross next to their names. And the people and advisors went, gulp. He's going to kill all those who opposed him. But he didn't. He said, the basis for him forgiving those who offended him would be none other than the redemptive work of Christ providing forgiveness. And if Christ forgave me for my sins, then I would need to forgive them for their sins. The red marks, the red crosses, weren't, we're going to execute them. Blood of Christ is covered. We should get that. Of all people, we should get that. Easy to understand, hard to do. The bitterness that I have in my heart against other people really ought not be there. Because I know full well that God doesn't have any bitterness in His heart against me because of what He's done for me in Christ. Let's move on now and let's look at the negative side of it. We're still on number two, rebuke and forgive. Let's talk a little bit about the rebuke side of things. Not so that we can become, you know, Omaha Rebuke Church. Um... I mean, we have to be, we have to be cautious with this, because sometimes people don't even know this is in the Bible, and then we find out it's in the Bible, and now all of a sudden, you know, we're like people who haven't taken gun safety lessons. It's like, just be careful. 
But we do need to know that it's in the Bible. And, and Jesus is saying to his disciples, you need to rebuke sin. Biblical mandate to rebuke sin. Right? Did you see it there? Just in case I'm pulling, pulling one over on you. Verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Okay? And I don't have to tell you that rebuking is not pleasant. You're going to correct them. You're going to say, that's wrong. Implication, stop. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. How many of you laughed? See, I'm trying trying to be relevant culturally and I just offended more of you than not. I was just... (laughs) Okay, your homework today, I've done this before, is to go home on YouTube, not now, and type in new heart... Stop it, okay? And you'll, 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 get, it, you'll get it later. Um, you rebuke, and you're saying, stop! Yeah, but I don't want you to say that to me, and that's too easy to stop. And, and, and you know what? That, I didn't like the way that made me feel. That, 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 that hurt me. Well, yeah, it's a rebuke. It's kind of the idea. You were wrong in behavior or wrong in thinking, conduct, and, and we called you on it and said, stop doing that. That's sin. See, one of the reasons I don't want to do it, and we're afraid of people who won't, that's all they ever do. One of the reasons I don't want to do it is because in the short term, it doesn't usually end well. And people say, I didn't like that. How dare you? And that hurt me. And you're the wrong one. For rebuking me. We just have to remember. You pray for motives. I don't know how to keep from being the, you know, Omaha Rebuke Church. We don't want to be that. You pray that we're not that. I don't think we are that. But we have to realize that there's such a thing as right, such a thing as wrong. There's such a thing as a real Christ and an antichrist. A gospel and other gospels. And so there's a place to say, you know what? That's not right. You're going to harm yourself and you're going to harm others. You need to stop doing that. It's a biblical mandate, disciples. Biblical mandate, just as forgiveness is. We need to know that. I've never seen Bob Newhart, by the way, ever. How many of you are Bob Newhart fans? Should I start watching it? Old episodes? Stop it! Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! You'll laugh when you watch it. We show it in all counseling classes at Omaha Bible Church. Um, Hebrews Hebrews 12, 11 says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How true is that? I never, ever remember being disciplined by my father. I knew my dad for 19 years, and I never, ever remember him disciplining me Verbally, physically, however it might have been, I never remember thinking, this is awesome. (laughs) In fact, I had some very sinful thoughts about my father uh, throughout my growing up. But given a little bit more room to think about it, I was thinking about it this past week, using that as an illustration, and I thought, I can remember one time when my dad didn't believe me, and I really was telling the truth. I'd love to tell you the story, but uh, I won't. 
and maybe this is just a good, a good bad memory, but I can't, I can't think of any time when I was corrected about something where it wasn't really true. Now, maybe not everyone can say that. I, I get that, but you go, you know what? Discipline hurts. Correction. Son, you're wrong. Son, you can't. Son, no. Son, stop it. I didn't like any of it. Now I look back and go, hmm, man, I miss my dad. Now as we transition, seven times a day sin. That seems like we can't do it. That seems undoable. That seems unreachable. That seems unachievable. How in the world can I really do this? I have a hard time forgiving somebody one time. Keep that in mind as we come to the third survival tactic from Jesus. Number three, believe. Believe. How about this? Verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our belief. Why do you think they said that? Could be just generically, you know, we just need to have stronger faith. And that tends to be how we would use it. I'm more and more convinced it's in this kind of context. You just need to forgive, 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 forgive. When they sin against you, forgive, 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 forgive. You don't hold it against them. You act as if it never happened. I think it's in that context here in this case where, he, where the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. This is what you're telling us to do. We don't think this is possible. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. I know my own heart at least well enough to know this is, this is like impossible to do. I think others are onto something and I'm going to adopt the same view. Keep it in that kind of, kind of context. There are hard things, but there are really hard things like forgiveness. I mean, rebuking is hard for most. Forgiving is harder forgiving seven times a day all of the time is like seemingly utterly impossible. Lord, increase our faith. I read that and go, why, why have I never thought about that before in context? Either because it's not there or I just haven't been paying attention. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, something very, very small, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous. That, 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 that's a cultural idiom of the day. Uh, that which is impossible, ludicrous, crazy, could be done. No one would want to do that. Jesus wouldn't want them to do it. It would be contrary to the way God made the earth. It's just a, it's a contemporary way of saying that, that, that that's impossible. And Jesus is saying that which is impossible is easy. Just with a little bit of faith. Maybe, maybe immature faith. Maybe young faith. Oh, and by the way, let's keep thinking about this and be good Bible students. Faith, it's one of those great passages. No, it's, I almost said horrible passages. Um, often misused passages where faith is the object of faith or self is the object of faith. And if you could just believe hard enough, 
if I believe hard enough, I have faith that can put mulberry trees in oceans. Oh, that's really what I want, but I really want a jet. I mean, he wasn't talking about this. He wasn't talking about some weird metaphysical thing. And he wasn't talking about faith in self. He's talking about object of faith. Oh, and by the way, in our context, the Lord said to them, the one who is trustworthy and in charge, and they say to the Lord, how can we do this? And he says, if you have even immature little faith, you can do this. And the context would have us believe, I think, the context of object of faith is faith in Christ. You believe in me? You're truly my disciple? You're trusting in me? You can forgive, and you can forgive a whole lot if you're one of my disciples. I think that's what he's really getting at. He's not giving him instructions for paranormal activity. (laughs) He's teaching them about forgiveness, I think. Even the most immature baby Christian who only understands Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, kind of stuff. Perfect life, obey the law, cross, resurrection, died for me. Oh, let's just get, Christ died for sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his unique only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Yes. You can forgive anybody for anything if you just get that on a kind of basic level. Baby faith. With baby faith, you can forgive. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe that's, it's not what he's getting at. In context, I think that it is what he's getting at. Phil Riken said this, whenever we put our faith in God, we are trusting him to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Radical forgiveness is a perfect example. We will not find the strength to forgive somewhere in our own goodwill. We need a supernatural work of divine grace. Only God can give us a forgiving heart. To be more specific, we need our faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross. As soon as we start talking about forgiveness, we are talking about something very close to the heart of the gospel. Something that draws us immediately to the cross where Jesus died. Lord, increase our faith in you. Help us to understand, trust in you and your gospel. I love it. I love Bible in context. Okay, finally, let's wrap it up. Number four. Number four. Going to survive in in the church and in the believing community. Serve. Serve. Number, maybe we should say say serve like a servant. uh, Verse seven. Will any one of you who has a servant, pl- oh, hold on, I've got to warn you. I know it's getting sleepy time and all that kind of stuff, and it's almost lunch. Um, but you're going to miss this one if you don't pay attention. I read this, I don't know how many times before I went, duh, because it kind of offends our sensibilities because none of us think of ourselves as servants. We're not in touch with this ancient culture where people had servants, and uh, we would be, prone to answer the questions the opposite way they're supposed to be answered. So let's just, let's just hang in there, okay? Will any one of you, verse 7, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? In other words, hey, you're, you, you've been working all day. Come in and have dinner with me. 
what he's saying to his disciples, would any of you say that? And our proneness and tendency is to say, yeah, we would. That's the wrong answer. That's not what he's getting at. You'll see it. Okay, I'm not making this up. They're servants. You know, you don't ask the trash guy to come in and go on vacation with you. I mean, it, it would just, it's a category error. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe that's nice to do, but that's not why Jesus is giving, giving the story here. Yes, Jesus is nice, and that's nice, and we should be nice, but that's not what he's getting at. How many of you would say to the trash guy, hey, would you like, we're going to the Ozarks. Would you like to leave? Just, just jump in the car. None of us would. How many of you would have servants, he's saying to them, working in the field, doing all the stuff that they do with sheep and all the things that sheep do, and then all... Hey, come on in, have dinner with me. He's like, no, 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 none of you would say that. Verse 7. Will he not, excuse me, verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Exactly. It's exactly what you're going to say to those who are hired by you to serve you in that culture. That's what you're going to say to them. You eat after you feed me. Because after all, that, that's why I hire you to do what you do. You're, you're employees. Verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, I want to say, well, of course he does, because it's nice to say thanks, and you're always supposed to say thanks. But actually, in this context, he's assuming we're going to say no. Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, amen to that. Wow. Talking to disciples. Teaching them about how to survive. You don't survive by, number one, not serving you know, I, I, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I just don't follow him. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. That's like saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't follow him. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And we're supposed to follow his example. Well, I don't serve. <laughs> One way to totally not get this is not to serve. But another way to totally not get, get this is maybe to serve and to be a, 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 a loyal servant. You serve and you serve like crazy. I mean, if we're going to connect things in the New Testament, we'll talk about serving in the body of Christ in the local church as well. Ephesians chapter 4. We can go down that road just for uh, application. You serve, 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 and then you think you should be praised. That's how I think. Studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, faithful, fearless, prayerfully, wanting to do my very best, expository preaching. Man, I want some attaboys. When, praise God. See, I feel so affirmed. And yet I have to remember Jesus said to disciples, by way of application, feed my sheep. Well, yeah, I did. And now, now look at me. I've never jumped up and down behind the pulpit in my life. That was, I'm so glad we don't video stream. What I need to remember is I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And as he's been called in multiple times in our passage, he's Lord. He's doing what disciples are supposed to do. 
and I'm going to get all goofed up and messed up when I do what I'm supposed to do and think somehow it should be met with accolades and affirmation. And this is a good one for us. Serving, I'm doing all these things and nobody seems to recognize it and acknowledge it. And you know what? Hey, I, I, I actually do want to recognize it. I want to say thanks. The rub comes when, when I don't or others don't and, and, and it's like, oh. this is a really good, good, helpful perspective. I mean, let's play it out a little bit facetiously. You know, you're talking to someone and you say, well, have you been serving? Yes. Faithfully? Yes. You're discouraged? Yes. It's like people don't even notice, huh? Yes. It's like they're not even thankful and people don't even, you know, say please and thank you to you. Yeah, you, you totally understand where I'm coming from. It's like they almost see you as an unworthy servant. Yeah, exactly. I'll have a Bible verse for you. <laughs> you know, it's a setup. Maybe we should apply it this way. This is good for your own heart, okay? Probably not so good for me to use against you because I actually do want to affirm you <laughs> and we're called to encourage one another, right? So maybe we shouldn't be quick to apply this to everybody else. We should apply the encourage one another to everybody else, but maybe we should take a passage like this and do take it to heart ourselves and apply it to our own hearts. So when people aren't thankful, aren't grateful, aren't praiseworthy, aren't encouraging, you're just acting like a disciple of Jesus. And you might want to remember it didn't end well for him. Ultimately it did, but you get the idea. It's helpful. So helpful. Whoa, church, what a terrible place church is, huh? You know, you're like, man, who would want to be a part of a church? Who would want to go to church? Who would want to be with other Christians? We, let's watch football next week. Um, you know what? The only organization Jesus Christ laid his life down for. I hope you're committed to wherever you work and do a great job for the glory of Christ. There's only one organization, though, that Christ died for, Ephesians chapter 5. He laid his life down for her, the church. There's only one organization on planet Earth that Jesus promised to build and that nothing would stop it from happening, Matthew chapter 16. It's the church. And so let's survive. Let's survive for the glory of Christ and for our good, okay?